Good morning. This is lesson 23 in our study of the book of Hebrews, and I call this the bottom line. As you know, we've reached uh, the conclusion to, uh, or, or, or at least are reaching the conclusion to the argument of the writer, and the applications will flow out of this in uh, chapters 11 through 13. As I was thinking about the setting of, of those original readers, um, I was reminded of the texts back in the Old Testament of Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and, and then the text in Haggai uh, chapter 2 that's in response to that. If you remember, the Israelites have returned from their Babylonian captivity and they have just succeeded in laying the foundation for the temple. Now, the temple is not built yet, but at least the foundation is there, and there's the hope of that coming. And on the part of some, mainly the younger people, there was a great celebration, and there was great joy. But on the part of the older people, there was weeping. And and uh, that was because they sensed that the former glory of the temple, as they had known it, as Israel had known it in the past, uh, the, the glory of Solomon's temple was not going to be there. This was not going to be the same. And so those people wept because of the lesser glory. But what God said to them is, I will be present with you. That's the real glory not just the gold and all of the furnishings and, and whatever. But as I think about the, the setting of the, of the original readers of, of Hebrews, here's the way I, I see it. And I, I grant these are assumptions, and you may see it somewhat differently, but this at least is the way I look at it. It almost has to be before the fall of Jerusalem. You have some references to the sacrifices and so on, if those had ended, it, it seems to me it's not quite the same impact as if they are actually still uh, going on. So it's before the fall of, of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple. So the temple is there with all of its glory, uh, and, and it's still in use. The Hebrew believers, as we know from chapter 10, had already experienced some measure of persecution as he describes it in the past, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But there, there has been a measure of persecution that these saints, saints have already experienced and endured. But it's clear from chapter 12 and verse 4 that more persecution is coming, and it appears that this persecution is going to be more severe. He says, you have not yet suffered to the shedding of blood, but it appears as though that is going to come. And of course, we know historically that is certainly true. And if Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed and the temple has not yet been destroyed and these people are lingering around to be a part of that, there's going to be a bloodbath that's going to take place, of course, in the context of the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, here's something that I think is at least an interesting observation for me. The early persecution that came for, for Hebrew Christians came primarily from Jewish unbelievers. Now, think about that in the sense of, of the Apostle Paul, or I should say of Saul as he is converted to Christ. If there is any unpardonable sin, uh, 
it is that you were a prominent Jewish leader persecuting the church, and all of a sudden you become a Christian who is embracing the church, and you are now speaking uh, to your former Jewish colleagues about their need to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. That That is almost the unpardonable sin. And so what I see is the early persecution of Hebrew Christians is the persecution that comes from unbelieving family, unbelieving associates, unbelieving Jews who find the conversion of Jewish people, Hebrew people, uh, intolerable. Eventually, persecution is going to come in a different way. Uh, and that is, you're going to you see a hint of that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Remember Priscilla and Aquila, where they had left uh, Rome because an edict had been uh, issued that brought about the exit of all Jews from Rome. So there's a kind of a double-edged sword that takes place if you think through the book of Acts. There is a certain level of protection that comes for Christians especially Hebrew Christians, but there is a certain level of protection that comes from being associated with Judaism because Judaism was a legal religion under Rome. And you remember it's in Acts chapter 18 that the Jews are trying to divorce, as it were, these Christians, and they're trying to say to Rome, they're not one of us. And you remember Gallio was about ready to see baloney. He wasn't exactly sympathetic, but he basically said, yeah, you're all Jews. And, and he refused to hear that case. And because of that, Christianity enjoys the liberties and the protection that were theirs as a legitimate religion. But what's going to happen is, because Christianity is linked with Judaism, when the animosity and the anger of Rome comes against Jews, for instance, in the sacking of Jerusalem, then to be associated with Judaism is not exactly a blessing. But at this moment in time, as I see it, the persecution that is coming is not primarily the persecution of unbelieving Gentiles. It is the persecution of unbelieving Jews that is a huge factor in uh, amongst uh, these uh, Hebrew Christians. I, I say here that, that the uh, Hebrew believers were double-dipping, and here's what I mean by that. The Hebrew believers, if, if you look early in the book of Acts, what you discover is there is this mixture of things that takes place. That is, the, the, the saints are gathering there at the temple, and they are gathering from house to house. There were certain things that they could do as a part of the temple. Maybe preaching was one of those. But there were certain things they could do in association with the temple. And there were other things they, they would do as they gathered from house to house. They would break bread, eat their meals together, and, and observe the Lord's Supper, all in the context, the more intimate context of homes. But there was this sort of dual uh, uh, worship uh, going on because they could look back, they could see Christ as the fulfillment of all of these things. So there was a way in which they could in, enter into the Jewish rituals as believers, but they also had their meetings together as as uh, as Christians in the church. But as time began to pass and as the pressure began to increase, uh, uh, the pressure of unbelieving Jews against those who were Christians, especially Hebrew Christians, then it became more and more uncomfortable 
for a person to to sort of straddle the fence and have these uh, two kinds of religious gathering uh, take place. And as you know, there was a fair level of influence exercised within the church so that you see the issue in Acts chapter 15 uh, where there are those who are saying if people are going to be saved, they need to believe in Jesus, but they've got to keep the law. They've got to, in effect, be Jewish to be Christian. And the Jerusalem Council said that is not true. But as you read the book of Galatians, you discover that there was an influential group that, that had entered into the church to the degree that even Barnabas, here's, here's Peter and Barnabas, and somehow they're sort of capitulating to this pressure and they're, they're, they're distancing themselves from Gentile believers. And so there is a pressure that comes on. And it seems to me that what happens is that some believers are sort of buckling under to that. Now, to add to that, you go back to this scenario that we saw in Ezra with the lesser glory, and you think about the temple, and as I see it at least, the temple is still standing. So you have the the rich, uh, beautiful um, artistry of, of the priest's garments, of the furnishings, of this beautiful temple, and all of the liturgy and whatever that goes with it, and, and you're going, if you're double dipping, you're going to the temple and you see this. And then you go to church. And it's a gathering probably in somebody's home. And, and uh, you know, the little kids are probably, you know what it's like in a home. I mean, all kinds of things are happening uh, there that you wouldn't always call glorious. Having a meal. But, but it's, it's simple. There's simply bread and wine. And the commemoration of that, there's not all the, the liturgy, the priestly garb, and all the trappings that go with it. And it's very possible that the persecution, along with this lesser glory, caused some to just sort of become infrequent in their in attendance at the gathering of believers and, and to have a, a greater sense of identification and joy in the gatherings at the temple to the point where they may have even considered just dropping out. It seems to me that it's something like that. And the danger is that to drop out or to drop back into Judaism requires one to, in effect, renounce the new covenant and, as it were, to trample on the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which means atonement came and the church was born. So here's the way that I understand the the argument of Hebrews in a real thumbnail sketch that brings us up to the conclusion in chapter uh, 10. You might say from chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is, uh, is, is presented as the ultimate man, or perhaps better yet, he is presented as the ultimate God man. Here is the one who is the exact representation of the Father. He is the one through whom the Father has finally and fully spoken. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And he is the one, therefore, in chapter 2, to whom we ought to listen carefully. And if we fail to listen carefully, then we begin to drift away. He is the one, Allah chapter 2, who has set aside... Uh, some of the prerogatives that he had, the glory, the fellowship with the Father at, at his right hand, and now he has come down to earth and taken on humanity. 
undiminished deity takes on uh, untainted humanity. And now you have the incarnation, which enables our Lord now to interact with men. In chapters 3 and 4, you have uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the story of uh, fallen man. And, and the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings are simply typical of us. But prone to wander, Lord, we feel it uh, there with them. And so the question is, how do you somehow find relationship between God and fallen men? And the answer comes in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as he has taken on humanity and come. And that is through the priesthood that uh, he has inaugurated uh, by means of the new covenant. A better way. The old system has never produced perfection in the sense of men being cleansed of their sin having a cleansed conscience where they have no resistance toward drawing near to God. And so what we have is the new covenant and the work of Christ that has brought this to pass. And it is better in several ways, as Hebrews points out. We have a new and a better priest. Not the Aaronic priesthood, where you had many priests year after year, and these guys die off, and they have to offer sacrifices for themselves. But a priest who comes without his own sins to deal with, and therefore he can deal with sins, our sins, once for all. Never again to have to repeat that. And since he lives forever and does not die, you don't need a succession of priests. You need simply one priest, the Lord Jesus, the priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek. We have a new and a better covenant. That covenant speaks of God who is going to change men's hearts. Rather than writing his law on stone, he writes his law on the tablets of our hearts. He changes us internally, and he makes us so that we desire and delight to keep his uh, commandments. We have a new and a better place of worship. It was a glorious thing, that tabernacle and later on the, the temple, but in a way it was a barrier. Only a few of the priests could be involved and only one priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. But we now have a better place. Our Lord has entered into the heavens. He sits seated at the right hand of the Father. The veil, as you know, was torn away. And now because of that, we have full access into the holy place and into fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a better sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of animals, unwilling, somewhat innocent animals, but we have the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, a sacrifice he willingly experienced for us, and he sinlessly experienced in the sense that he did not die for his sins, but he bore our sins that were placed upon him. A sacrifice that is once for all, that does not need to be repeated day after day, year after year, but a sacrifice that was made once and it is forever effective. Out of that comes in our text a call to obedience in verses 19 through 25. Now we are given some specific areas of application that we are to, uh, that we are to follow through on. 
Now, that comes just before a word of warning, a serious word of warning in verses 26 through 31. If the exhortation is given to us to, uh, to do these things, then the warning is, if we are to forsake this new covenant and trample on the blood of Christ, then we place ourselves, of course, in the way of, of serious judgment that would come to us. So a serious warning along with or following the exhortation. And then the final words of encouragement that the author has regarding his audience and the evidences of the work of God in their life as we conclude with uh, chapter 10. Now let's take a look. I'm going to, I'm going to take the, uh, the, the 30,000 foot uh, approach to our text and, and uh, try and look at some of the, the broader, bigger themes of, of this. Uh, obviously, if we went into detail, we could, we could spend uh, many weeks uh, in the text. But let me point out some, some observations. You notice that in the text, he begins with two statements that start with since. Since these things are true. These are not new things to the reader. They are a review of what he has been saying all along. But he lays the basis once again. He reminds us that the exhortations that follow are exhortations that are based upon the finished work of our great high priest. Here is why we can be exhorted to do these things. Then they're followed by, let us, in most translations, three times. These are not, technically speaking, uh, imperatives. They are not commands. They are exhortations that are given to uh, believers. Now, I want to be careful because it, it, we, we want to be very cautious not to minimize them, but it seems to me there is a difference between an exhortation and, and a command. When you think about what the text has just said about our Lord Jesus, and when he looks at it, and, and he looks at the law from Psalm 40, and he says, and I have seen what's been set forth, your will has been set forth, and it is my delight to do your will. I don't see the Father saying, Son, this is my command. I see the Son joyfully embracing what he knows is his purpose. And, and to me, that's what our author wants us to do. Joyfully embrace what God has called us to do. This is our calling. This is our privilege. This is what Christ has done his work for. And so a command just doesn't quite carry with it, I think, the spirit that, that our Lord wants for us in this. The other thing is, these folks are legalists. And legalists always want a command. They say, just tell us what to do. As a matter of fact, a lot of Christians are like that. They could get upset with a text like this because what they really want is for the writer to the Hebrews to give us very specific instructions about how we are to do this. Instead, he leaves us with general guidelines. That's because we ought to joyfully commit ourselves to what he's calling us to do, and then we ought to ask God to demonstrate to us how in our lives these things find specific application. Well, there are three exhortations that are given to us. But the exhortation, I say, is not without its following warning. 
And it is very clear from the things that precede, since these things are true, and the chapters which have come before this, all about the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever responsibility we bear is a responsibility that we bear because God has made provision. When you look at these exhortations, the exhortations always turn us back to God. And they say, this is what he has done. This is a God-centered text, and legalists want something else. It's a God-centered text that says it is because God has done this work. It is because God is faithful. His promises are true and proven. Therefore, you can do uh, these things. And these things are draw near, hold fast, and encourage others. I was thinking about this during the worship service, and it had never really quite occurred to me. I, in fact, I must confess to you, for a couple of weeks now, I've been saying, what are three words? And boy, if they would rhyme or they would start with the same letter, it would make me even happier. Never found it. But I think I, think I can tell you three words that may characterize, draw near, hold fast, and encourage others. Faith, hope, and love. Isn't that what he's really calling us to? To believe in the one who has done this finished work, to commit ourselves to him, and to endure based upon the hope that he has set before us and the confidence that he is faithful to his word and his promises. And out of that flows a love that now manifests itself toward other believers. Certainly a love toward God, but toward other believers. Faith, hope, and love. At least for me, that works as so far as our text is concerned. Notice the sequence of these three. Faith, hope, love, or draw near, hold fast, consider how to encourage others. It all begins with trust in Christ. It begins there. You don't start telling people to help others before they've embraced Christ. That's the sad thing about some churches today. Some churches today, there are people that are out working their tails off, doing good for other people, but apart from embracing the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with trusting Christ. And having trusted in Him... Perseverance and endurance is holding fast to that confession that we've made in Him. And having held fast or holding fast, we now are able to reach out and to minister to other people. I was thinking of an illustration, and I'm not sure it's necessarily a great one, but when, uh, when you're riding on an airplane, you remember, and they give you this drill about what happens if you run out of oxygen and the oxygen masks are going to fall down in front of you and whatever. And, and it always makes you feel just a little bit uncomfortable when they say, if you're a parent of a small child, put the mask on yourself first. You know that? I mean, your inclination is to look out for the little one first. What they're saying is, if you're not alive, you won't be helping anybody. So put the mask on yourself and, and, and then you will be able to reach out. It seems to me that that's the sequence that we have here. We must first embrace the work of Christ for ourselves and hold fast to it. And it's only then that we can minister to other people. Notice that there's an individual and a corporate dimension 
to our faith and our walk. Our faith is obviously an individual thing. That is, we must personally trust in Christ ourselves. And we must personally endure. But in the midst of this context, there is that corporate element where we are a part of a body of believers. And within that body, we are encouraged and we encourage others and minister to them. So there is an individual and a corporate dimension to our faith. The generality of these exhortations is, is I think, fairly obvious. When you look at it, there are not an, a nice list of things that we are to do, as, a, as I mentioned before. I was thinking about, in this regard, John chapter 6, just after Jesus has fed the, uh, the 5,000, and they say to Jesus, what work should we do? And Jesus' answer is, believe, believe. What we don't need is a list of things to do. That's what the law was. What we need is to see the centrality of Jesus Christ and what he has done, and we believe we are to believe in him. It seems to me it starts there. The other thing is, I'm inclined to say that oftentimes in Scripture, we are called to make a general commitment first and then to make specific commitments as those occasions come along. I'm not sure it's a great illustration, but try this on for size. When a couple comes together to get married, uh, there are commitments that are made, right? But those commitments are general, sickness and in health and whatever. I mean, you know, but but after you say, I do, then you begin to discover, oh, <laughs> I see it means this today. So that as you go along, you find particular ways in which those general commitments are to be applied. It seems to me that God wants of us first a general commitment and then a willingness to follow that commitment to whatever specifics there may be. Now, I'm not saying that's always true, but it seems to me generally it's true. God wants us to say, look, look at Romans chapter 12. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, okay? Now, working out of that presentation, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to flow, but they all come from something general. So it seems to me that what our author does is start with a general exhortation for which he expects a response, We haven't gotten to chapters 11 through 13 yet. We'll get more specifics as time goes on. But he calls on us to agree and to commit, I believe, ourselves in principle before we come to the particulars. Well, I've said that this is a very general text, but there is one specific, and I must confess to you, I'm going to land there. Uh, and there are other places that one could go, but I'm going to land there, and I'll try to explain my reasoning for that as it comes along. Notice that the only specific application regards one's involvement in church. The only specific application in our text pertains to one's relationship with the church and one's ministry to others. I believe that's significant, and I'm going to play that out for you if I can, God willing. In general terms, we are not to forsake our gathering together with the church, and we are to use the gathering together with the church as the opportunity 
to stimulate others to love and good deeds, to admonish, exhort, encourage our fellow believers. Now, let's take some specific areas that are related to the church. Number one, evangelism and the church. And I would say, first and foremost, Hebrews is the gospel. You know, I've been down the Roman road a number of times. I must confess to you, I've never taken anybody but down the Hebrews trail. But, but would you not agree with me that you can, you can present the gospel through the book of Hebrews? You begin with the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, his incarnation, man's sin, three and four, the need for a mediator. And now the, the, the clear fact that a, a system of salvation by works is not going to work and that somehow we need a better system and that system is the new covenant that is inaugurated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Better priest, better place of ministry, you know, better sacrifice, better covenants and promises. All of those things are summed up in Christ. The gospel is here in the book of Hebrews. It's here to preach. It's here for us to understand perhaps the gospel in somewhat different way. The church gathering is not primarily the place for evangelism. Now, I think a lot of churches have forgotten or lost that one. The church gathering is not primarily for the sake of evangelism. Did I say people shouldn't get saved in church? Of course they should. But what we read in this text is church is a place where believers come and they celebrate their faith in Christ and they strengthen one another And evangelism takes place when they go, in the words of Hebrews, outside the camp. Okay, i got to tell you, that Las Vegas thing just drives me nuts. What goes on here stays here. You know, my fear is that that's true of churches. What goes on here stays here. Nobody will ever know what we did. That isn't true. What goes on here doesn't stay here. When we are strengthened in our faith, when we are built up, when we encourage one another and we go forth, that's where evangelism takes place as we go meet the world in their place and share the gospel with him. Further on the subject of evangelism, we don't, the, the new covenant tells us we don't need gimmickry and manipulative methods to see people come to faith in Christ. See, the new covenant says God is going to write his law on men's hearts. He is going to change hearts, right? And if he is going to change hearts, then it isn't about me tricking or manipulating somebody to somehow sign a card so that then we can tell them, voila, here's the fine print. It isn't that way. And Paul, therefore, says, I preach Christ with boldness. Why? Because I know that ultimately salvation is the work of the Spirit of God writing on men's hearts. Not badgering people into some kind of a commitment. This is what the gospel's about. And so it's the new covenant that changes the way in which we go about the work of proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul, wow, 2 Corinthians, he makes a lot of that. And 
other places too. All right, what do we learn about worship and the church? Well, would we not agree that worship is certainly one of the ways in which we draw near to God? (laughs) I would hope. I mean, that's what it was for Israel. Is drawing near to God meant somehow getting as close to Him as you could, even though you had the boundaries of the tabernacle and, and other things to keep men separate. We don't need a certain earthly place. See, within Judaism, think about it. You needed Israel, the land. You needed Jerusalem because God said, when you come to worship, you need to worship me in this place. And in their minds, you needed the temple. And that's why the the, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, when she begins to understand this Jesus, he knows what he's talking about. She says, "Uh, let's talk about where it is that we worship. I don't think that's a diversion. I don't think she's saying, well, let's not talk about my private life anymore. Let's talk about something academic. She's saying, somehow Samaritans and Jews have got this problem with, where do you worship God? On this mountain or on this one? And Jesus makes it very clear. Since I have come, it's not about where, it's about who. And that's when he says to her, remember she says, I don't know who Messiah is. I, who am speaking to you, am. We say he, but I am. He's the one. That's where worship is to take place. Well, that, that's going to have all kinds of implications, but I, I'll save my, save my energy for those as they come along. No certain earthly place. Worship centers around Christ and the new covenant that is inaugurated by his blood. Is that not right? So I raise the follow-up question. If churches are playing out the book and the teaching of, uh, of the book of Hebrews, how important do you think the new covenant of our Lord Jesus in his blood is? Or let me be more pointed. How often is it celebrated? How often is it celebrated? Quarterly? Quarterly? I mean, I, I, when I was in seminary, I, one of the profs, bless him, but, but he basically said, you know, in the New Testament, it's daily or weekly, and, and, and the bottom line is, it's whenever you want to. Boy, whenever the early church got together, it seems like every time they got together, what did they do? They remembered the new covenant in Jesus' blood because it all It all comes down to that. Is that not what Hebrews is saying? It's been telling us about this new covenant. It's been telling us about his better sacrifice. Why is it we push it off to the sort of leftovers of the service? After we've gotten done with the important stuff, we'll have this. I mean, I've been there. I've I've seen it and I've done it. But it seems to me it's clear. And, And that's why in the New Testament, if you want to talk about the options, it's daily or weekly. And and frankly, both of those are good alternatives depending on the circumstances. But surely it is important for us on a weekly basis. Simplicity. We, we, We in America have come to think that certain things are necessary, essential parts of of church. But I have to tell you, big fancy buildings, big buildings, big crowds of people, whatever, They are not essentials. They may be nice, and I don't say there's anything particularly wrong with them. 
But the problem is we ought to remember what the essence of it's all about. And that's the problem that I think Hebrew Christians had. Here's this, here's this home and, and, and a simple gathering of people and, and, and no great uh, clergy of, of priests and whatever and, and celebration. Just, just a group of believers like a family sitting around the elements of bread and wine. It just doesn't seem spectacular enough. The question is, is the spectacularity in the work of Christ or is the spectacularity in our surroundings? I think that we in America have forgotten how most of the church in the world worships. Well, I'll get to that more in a second. Simplicity. What do we learn about priesthood and ministry in the church? Well, we learn from Hebrews that we have one great high priest, right? There is no need for any other mediator. Now, if that's true, then why is it that in so many churches you feel like there is this middleman, middlemen, a mentality where there is this group of people who somehow stand between men and God? Sometimes they're even called priests. But whatever the name that they're called, there somehow is not the sense that we have one great high priest. He sits in heaven. (laughs) And we don't need any other high priest to take his place. Now, follow that up with the truth that we have become a kingdom of priests. And if you are looking for a priest, then look around because everybody who's a believer in this building and outside who is a believer, they are priests. And the priesthood is ours, not theirs or mine. It is ours, a mutuality of ministry that takes place. It's not top down. And when it comes to ministry, it seems to me it's got a whole new mindset. We've got this consumer view of the church. And that is, what do people look for? What is it that people really want? And and we're going to do McDonald's or whoever it is that says, have it your way. You want onions, pickles, whatever, we'll do it. But it seems to me that the, the whole orientation is, what can church do for me? And this text in Hebrews says, when you gather... Your occupation ought to be to look about and find other believers and say, what is it I can say or do to encourage them in their faith or walk? Church is the context for us to serve, not to have somebody serve what we want on a silver platter to us. Last point under that, and that is, the New Testament gathering as described in the New Testament uh, epistles and the book of Acts, is the best way that I know of to implement the teaching of the book of Hebrews. I do not believe that you can apply the book of Hebrews without applying it in the context of the church. This is where we begin to see it work out. That's why I believe the first area of application the author comes up with is, how does it work in church? Church is a manifestation of what we believe. It is a manifestation of Christ. If Christ is the great high priest, then we better manifest that in our church. 
by what we do and how we gather. If the church is gathering so that we can mutually minister to one another, then somehow there must be a meeting like we read about in 1 Corinthians 14 and like we have around the Lord's table where men can minister and people can minister this way and not just this way. Is that not right? It seems to me that's what flows from the, the book of Hebrews. Okay, I'm getting my pulse up here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind up soon. So, why is New Testament church polity and practice so important? One, because it's the first specific application in Hebrews. So when we come to the conclusion, that ought to be a clue to us. Secondly, because Jesus taught it. Isn't it interesting that after Peter makes his great confession in Matthew chapter 16, the first thing Jesus says is, on this truth about who I am and what I am here to do, I will build my church. The truth of God is the foundation of the church. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. It is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the truth that we read in the Gospels, the truth that we read in Hebrews, ought to be manifested and personified in the church. That's why the church is so important. The church is the manifestation of Christ. It is the body of Christ. People see Christ, or they should, when they come to church. And therefore, how we do church is absolutely critical. Paul's teaching, the church is to go out with the gospel. Here's a really big one, folks. And it's hard for us to grasp. But if we came out of this Hebrew background where you had to be at a certain place at a certain time, three times a year, the males came, you know, to Jerusalem. You got to go to a certain place, certain time, certain priesthood, certain sacrifices. You can imagine how devastating it would be with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. If everything comes down to that one place and that one place is gone, man, we're in a bunch of trouble. But you see, God was actually gracious to remove the place. Because once Jesus came, it wasn't about the place at all. Now, if you've got some rigid idea of how church is to go, and much of that idea is wrapped in the culture of the day, then what happens is we either go into these foreign places and try to reproduce our church, God forbid, for these people when it doesn't fit, or we go with the simplicity of the church in the New Testament and that simplicity allows us to go into any culture, any time, any place, any political circumstance. And I would say to you, you take those countries where the church is under the most severe persecution. It is a simple gathering in a house where people have bread and wine. And they have, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the mutual ministry and priesthood of believers, they have all they need all they need. And I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you, folks, I think the day is coming when the church is not going to have the favor of our government. And I'm not just talking about they don't give us tax-exempt status. You're going to be punished for being a Christian. And I would gather, I would, I, I would suspect that you will not have mega churches then. Or if you do, they won't be real churches. You're going to have Christianity boiled down to its essence. And I think that's why we need to really come to grips with what is the core belief system 
that underlies the church and how does church polity, as it's spelled out in the New Testament, how does church polity play that out? How does it play out that there is one high priest and we are all a kingdom of priests? How does it play out that we ought to not to forsake our gathering, but we ought to gather in order to minister to one another? It's all here in the New Testament. And I believe New Testament ecclesiology flows directly from the truths of who our Lord Jesus is and his great high priestly ministry. So a little exhortation. Make a commitment to do what the author has said. Draw near. Draw near. I was thinking about, and unfortunately, I don't think it's really true for us, but think about the Hebrew Christians and all the barriers that kept them at a distance from God. And, and my parents uh, have a dog, and, and uh, they, they always have it in a, had it in a kennel, and they decided that was not really given enough exercise. So they got one of those gizmos where you lay a wire all the way around your yard. You know what that is? And it sends out a signal, and then you got a little transmitter right in a shock collar. And so the, the dog, you know, it, it goes first couple times, it goes crossing that line, and ooh, ouch, it hurts. Pretty soon, you can turn the power off and you can leave it off and that dog will not get close to that line. That dog has learned, I'm not going there. See, for Hebrew Christians, they were so used to the line being drawn between them and God that they had a reticence to draw near. My fear is that we have so minimized and minimalized God, we don't have a fear about getting into his presence. And so I think ours is a kind of arrogance that we kind of jive our way in and, and, you know, it's just, we're too casual about it. We probably need a little of the awe and the fear. And by the way, a little more reading in Hebrews ought to generate a little bit of that. We ought to have a sense of the distance between us and God and then realize that that gap, that distance, has been crossed by our Lord Jesus. It is because of Him that we can draw near. But let's make the commitment, draw near. It may be that you're a believer and, and, and you've gotten cold and calloused in your Christian life. Draw near. It may be that you've been faithful and you have been near to God. Draw nearer. That's what this text is about. And it may be that you're outside and that you've never come to realize the perfections of Christ and the imperfections and the sins that come with you and your package. Draw near. He has atoned for sins. He offers the cleansing of conscience which enables men to approach him without fear or shame. Draw near in faith. Hold fast. Hold fast. Times are going to get tough. For us, I believe. It's been easy for us to be Christians, but it may not be for long. Hold fast to Him. He is faithful. And then consider how to stimulate one another. Make that commitment, and I guarantee that God will show you ways to put it into practice. Father, thank you for this text and, and for this great book of Hebrews. Thank you for the majesty of our Lord Jesus, his greatness and the immensity of his humility in coming and taking on human flesh and then dying for our sins. Thank you for his priesthood. Thank you that he sits at your right hand. 
And he is there to offer help in our time of need. Help us, I pray, to draw near, hold fast, and consider how to serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.